Hi, I'm Valerie Schmidt, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture for today. Um, the Pew Bibles, it can be found on page 833. It is John 1, 29 through 34. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of God. Well, at this time, uh, kids ages four through kindergarten can be dismissed to Children's Church, and they'll be back with us during the closing song. And as they're going out, as Benjamin said at the beginning, if you are here and you're not normally in here, which means you're one of our, our young kids, uh, and you want to draw a picture related to the sermon this morning, we're going to be talking about John the Baptist. And if you need any creative inspiration, John the Baptist was a wild man out in the desert who was baptizing people, and he ate bugs and honey. So I want to see some cool pictures from you guys, if you are artistic. John's some good creative inspiration for us. But our sermon is about John the Baptist this morning and his work and testimony. And as Benjamin pointed out last week, John the Apostle's gospel focuses not so much on what John does as a baptizer, but on what John says. In this gospel, it's more appropriate to refer to him as John the witness instead of John the baptizer. Now, I don't often share my sermon titles with you all, but I think it's important today to highlight it. My, my sermon title is called, Who Does John Say That I Am? And some of you might hear in those words, as you should, a play on words with one of Jesus' most famous questions. And it's what Noah read for us before our confession of sin in Mark chapter 8. Before you think I'm too clever, this was Benjamin Verbacek's idea for a sermon title. He's kind of the king of those. If you're catching a theme here, clever sermon titles. But I really, I, I like it. It fits. It's appropriate for this sermon. But in Mark 8, Jesus turns to his closest disciples, those following most closely after him, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they give some answers as to what other people are saying about him. And then he turns and, as it were, looks them dead in the eye and says, but who do you say that I am? And last week, we heard John the Witness articulate for us both who he is not and who he is. John knows that he is not the Christ, the promised Savior that came from God. And he does know that he is the voice preparing people to receive the Christ. But in this passage, 
as Jesus walks into town, we hear John's witness, John's testimony about who Jesus is. We hear John's answer to the question, who do you say that I am? And as we hear his testimony, that same question is put to each of us. Who do you say that Jesus is? And through John's testimony about Jesus, which we're going to study together this morning, we can know that Jesus is God's appointed Savior, and we can bear witness to this truth ourselves. So if you would pray with me before we begin, that the Lord would be kind to us and give us his spirit to teach us his word. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning for the truth of the gospel. That what is true of Jesus Christ is true of all who trust in him. And Lord, as, as we begin this morning, I'm reminded as I think about all we're going to talk about and all the glories of Christ, I'm reminded of the fact that in the prophecy of Isaiah, you say that your people are like a crown jewel in your crown. Lord, help us to believe that today. Help us to believe what's true about Jesus and that what's true of him in the gospel is true of us. And may that bear fruit in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we hear John's testimony about Jesus, it's, it's going to do two things to us, I hope, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is going to be our outline for our sermon this morning. I pray that it would prepare us to receive a Savior and help us to encounter the Savior. So we're going to prepare for the Savior and encounter the Savior. And while we're going to focus much of our time on the testimony of Jesus, I do want to first talk about John's baptism and how what his baptism is and means sets the stage for his testimony about Jesus Christ and about how John's baptism sets the stage for how we receive the Christ. So if you would, look with me at John 1. We're going to read verses 31 and 33 again together here. John chapter 1, 31 and 33. John says, I myself did not know him, that's Jesus, I myself did not know Jesus, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. In verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And as we look at John's baptism here at the beginning of the sermon this morning, we're going to see John's baptism serves two purposes. There's kind of two general buckets we can put John's baptism under for the purpose that it serves. John's baptism was for preparation and for identification. Preparation and identification. So first, John baptized to prepare the way for the Savior, to prepare people for the Savior. If you remember last week from Pastor Benjamin's sermon in the section before, John identifies himself as 
the person in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, who is crying out in the wilderness to prepare a way for God's salvation to come. And so by submitting to John's baptism, the, the, the people who came out to John were not simply adding another religious practice to their lives. John's baptism had significance only as it marked people off who recognized their need for a savior. Undergoing John's baptism required you to recognize that there were things wrong with your life in this world that you are powerless to overcome. And that's precisely why so many people were offended by John's call to be baptized. Because submitting yourself to John's baptism was to say, I, like John, know that I am not the Savior, that I need a Savior, and that I am looking for a Savior who is soon to come. And this makes sense of why the other Gospels speak of John's baptism as a baptism of repentance. Repentance does not mean simply trying to take your life and live it a little bit differently. Repentance does not try to simply fix our slightly broken lives with a few life hacks and religious to-dos. Repentance deals with the root of our heart. Repentance begins by acknowledging at our core that we trust in other people and things to save us that we'll never be able to deliver on what they promise. In other words, to use the imagery that John uses in one of the other Gospels, repentance is not trying to pluck off the rotting fruit from the branches of your life and duct tape some fresh fruit to the branches. That doesn't provide any sort of real fix. John's baptism goes right to the root of our lives, directly to what we trust in, to where our hope lies, as Noah said earlier in the service. As John says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. John's baptism cuts to our heart. And like the people of John's day, whether we recognize it or not, we are all in need of a Savior. And in fact, most of our lives are spent, whether we recognize it or not, seeking out that Savior. And our lives bear the rotten fruit of trying to find a Savior in all of the wrong places. Some of you are here this morning and you are eaten up with guilt and shame over what you've done in the past and over who you are in the present. Maybe you've hurt others in substantial ways through words and actions, and now you look in the mirror and you don't like the person that you see in the morning. You have nowhere to go to deal with that guilt and shame that plagues your life. And some of you, if you admit it, believe that your life is a dead end. You continue to numb yourself with alcohol, or you distort the truth to make yourself look good, or you have your life ruled by whatever fear consumes your heart. Others of you long for love and approval, for someone to see you and say, you matter. And so you spend your life trying to receive this from your boss or your best friend 
or your significant other or your child or your mom or your dad, but you're never filled up like you know you should be. And for all of this and a million other things, we are people desperately in need of a Savior. And so John calls us to prepare our hearts for the Savior by repenting and recognizing our need for a better Savior. To look at the root of our lives and say, what am I trusting in and what fruit does that bear out in my life? And so if you want to prepare for the Savior this morning, look at your heart and honestly admit the hard truth that your Savior's cannot ultimately heal you or fix you. They can't do what they promised to do. They can't save you. But John's baptism was also for the purpose of identification. And, and this is where, in, in preparing for the sermon this week, I learned something new, which is always fun and exciting for me. Uh, so I'm excited to share this with you. John says in verse 31, and then he repeats it again in verse 33, as we heard read, that he did not know Jesus. He says, I myself did not know him. Now, this can't mean that John had no knowledge of Jesus as a person. Because we read in Luke that John was Jesus' cousin. And certainly John would have known Jesus. They were family members. But what becomes clear as we read this account here in John 1 is that what John is talking about is that John didn't know Jesus, meaning he didn't know Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the one for whom he was sent to prepare the way. But in this passage, John recounts how he came to know Jesus' identity as the Savior through his baptism. Now, many of us can think of a scene uh, from a movie where the witnesses to a murder sit in a room with detectives and with a sketch artist, and they try to figure out what did the murderer look like. And, and the artist makes a few tweaks, and it says, no, 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 he had longer hair, or his eyebrows were thicker, or whatever else it might be. But once they have the sketch of who the murderer is, then the whole town knows who they're looking for. Uh, I, I, the scene from a movie that brought, was brought to my mind immediately was the scene from Toy Story 2 where they're trying to figure out who stole Woody. And then they find Buzz Lightyear says, draw that man in a chicken suit. And then Rex yells out, it's the chicken man. <laughs> they know who they're looking for in that moment. But here, God gives John a heavenly sketch to help him identify who this promised Savior is. And in this sketch that he gives to John, the sketch is of the Spirit descending upon Jesus and remaining upon him. Now that was no arbitrary picture or sketch. Throughout the Old Testament, the leaders and kings of God's people were anointed with oil and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the specific task that God called them to. And in the prophet Isaiah, in several different places, we read that God's promised Savior and King would be anointed not with oil, but with the Spirit of God himself. This was the sign of God's promised Savior. 
And so God is drawing on that and giving John the Baptist this heavenly sketch of what the Savior would look like. And then in verse 31, we read that the purpose that John came baptizing was so that this Savior might be revealed to Israel. In other words, through John's baptism, the Savior would be identified. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what John recounts here for us. Look at verse 32 with me. It says there in the first part of the verse, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. John there is talking about when he put Jesus into the water, when he baptized him. When John baptizes Jesus, and as we read in the other Gospels, the Spirit descends like a dove on him, everything locks into place in John's mind. John's baptism causes Jesus Christ to match the sketch that he got from God. And so after John baptizes Jesus, he goes from looking for a Savior generally to looking for or, and testifying to this Savior, Jesus Christ, specifically. And for all those looking for a Savior from sin and suffering, John says, this is your guy. Jesus is the one. Look to him. Now, if you've ever had the luxury of putting together a children's toy, you'll know that they often give the instructions to push it and wiggle it until it clicks in place. And that's when you'll know that the leg is in place right so that when your kid sits on it, they don't tumble down to, to an injury. But you also know if you put a kid's toy together, it, it's easy to get confused, at least if you're like me, and it's hard to, to fully know sometimes when that thing locks in place. And you can kind of trick yourself into it. You like wiggle the leg around and you're like, I think I heard a click, you know? Like I think it might have locked in place. But, but when you get the, ro- the right piece in the right slot with the right rotation and it clicks, you're like, oh, that was it. Like, it all makes sense. It all falls into place. You know when you have it in right. When John encountered Jesus in the water that day when Jesus was baptized, not just as a family member and a friend, but as his savior, his whole life and ministry locked into place. And when we stop trying to fit all those other misshapen saviors into our life and trust Jesus as our savior, our life clicks into place. We see in him the one that we need. And so now let's turn to John's testimony so that we, like John, can encounter Jesus as the Savior that we all need and long for. John's testimony here has, he, he says three distinct things about Jesus. There's three distinct parts to his testimony. And each of them is a way of saying Jesus is the Savior in a different way. And so we're going to look at each of those three parts of the testimony, and we'll see how Jesus locks into place as both the promised Savior from the Old Testament and as the Savior that we all so desperately need. And so let's 
together for the rest of the sermon. Just sit and worship and behold Jesus together. First, Jesus is the Lamb of God. As Jesus walks into town, this is what comes out of John's mouth immediately. Look with me at verse 29. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's exclamation there should bring to your mind the Old Testament theme of sacrifice. Although it was not common for the Jewish people of that day to believe that God's Savior would need to suffer and die, the image of an animal being sacrificed for the sin of the people would have been forefront in their minds. In order for Jesus to be our Savior, John is saying he has to deal with our sin and the punishment from God that this sin deserves. Jesus is the lamb led to the slaughter, like Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53, who takes the sin of his people upon himself so that his people might have their sins removed from them as far as the east is from the west. And so that by his sacrificial death, his people might have victory in him. And so for all of those suffering under the guilt and shame that sin brings to your life, see Jesus as your savior. Notice that when Jesus walks into town, the first word out of John's mouth is, behold, look. His eyes are drawn beyond himself, outside of himself, to his salvation. Church, if you are crushed under the weight of moral guilt, if you are terrified by the accusations of shame and terrified of the person that you are, behold the Lamb. Look to the Lamb. It's so easy for us to become consumed with our sin and believe that that's repentance. But it's not. God does not want that for you. Once the Savior walked onto the scene, which John testifies that he has, we can look to him as the Lamb. No matter what you have done, Jesus bore the punishment for that sin upon his back at the cross so that there's no condemnation for you. The worst thing that you fear about yourself in your sin is gone. There is no condemnation. You are victorious in him. And no matter who you are, and no matter the shame that you carry because of who you are, and what's been done to you. Jesus was stripped naked and publicly humiliated so that you could bring your shame to him and exchange it for the righteous robes of royalty that he wants to wrap around you. Behold the lamb. Next, John tells us that Jesus is the baptizer. Jesus is the baptizer. Read with me again verses 32 and 33. That's where we see this part of his testimony. It says, And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Here in these verses, John and Jesus are presented as having two different baptisms, two different types of baptism. John baptizes with water, and Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism is to Jesus' baptism what a sign pointing to a water fountain is to a water fountain. One can only point you to the real thing. The other is the real thing. But what does it mean that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit? What does that really mean? Well, the Holy Spirit, among other things, was the chief sign of God's promised new age of salvation. So all throughout the Old Testament, we read that the Holy Spirit is the one who ushers in God's new creation, his new age where he is going to make all things new. And so John's baptism was a way of saying God's promised new age is on the horizon. Jesus' baptism, which is not with water but with the Holy Spirit, says that new age is here in me. You see, Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And all throughout his life, up until the point of his very death, Jesus perfectly relies upon the Holy Spirit for his life and ministry, as we all should and fail to do. But Jesus, when he is raised from the dead and, is, and ascends to the right hand of the Father, Jesus then is baptized into the Holy Spirit. He's plunged into the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, is the firstborn of the new creation. He's given the Spirit in full, the personal power and presence of God himself. And that is good news for us because as we read all over the New Testament, because Jesus has been plunged into the Holy Spirit, he can plunge you into the Holy Spirit that everyone who trusts in him can experience the new life of God's salvation, even right now in your very life. So what does that mean practically? Well, if you feel like your life is a dead end, if you feel like you are guaranteed to be going nowhere and doomed to failure, Look to Jesus as your Savior, as your baptizer. Because Jesus has vanquished the power of sin and has risen from the grave and has be been given the personal presence of God's new creation spirit in full, you can change. You can change. You are not stuck. Your life is not a dead end. When you trust in Christ, you are plunged into that same spirit. He, he doesn't just dole out a little bit of that spirit based on your spiritual performance. When you turn to Jesus, he plunges you, baptizes you into his Holy Spirit so that God's personal presence becomes the environment of your life. 
So by his power, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. By his power, you can be constrained by Christ's love and not a spirit of fear. When you look to Jesus, he supercharges you with the personal energy and atmosphere of heaven. God's spirit himself. In Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is doing a new thing in you. You are not a dead end. Jesus is your baptizer, and his Holy Spirit is your baptism. Look to him. And lastly, John testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. And we read this reality in verse 34. But we hear Jesus called the Son of God around church a lot. If you're somebody who's who's familiar to church, you've been a Christian for a long time, or even if you're somebody who's a new Christian, or maybe not even a Christian here this morning, you probably have heard Jesus somewhere referred to as the Son of God. But what does that title really mean when we call Jesus the Son of God? Well, first of all, it's another way of saying that Jesus is God's anointed one. Like we've said, he's the Savior, the Messiah, You can read in Psalm 2, for instance, of how Jesus is called the Son of God in this manner. Jesus is the one who is appointed by God for the task of saving his people. But this title, Son of God, denotes more than a formal contractual relationship. Jesus is not just God's hired gun to accomplish his salvation. It also shows us the eternal relationship of love between Jesus, God the Son, and his Father. Now, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, is an Old Testament prophecy that John chapter 1 here is steeped in. And in that verse, the prophet Isaiah brings together these two realities that are encapsulated by the title, Son of God, perfectly. So hear these words from Isaiah 42, verse 1, of God speaking of his servant. Think of Jesus. He says there, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is God's chosen, anointed Savior, but he is also the delight of his Father's heart. And this is why in the other Gospels we read that at Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit falls on him and he is anointed as Messiah, a voice from heaven cries out, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And... Remember what we read just a few weeks ago, what Pastor David preached for us from John chapter 1. In verse 12, it says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so for all of those here this morning who are starving for love and approval, look to Jesus, the Son of God. 
And on this day, when we remember and celebrate fathers, let me make this application as specific as possible. Whether you had an awesome dad, a horrible dad, or a dad somewhere in the middle like most dads, your dad is not your savior. And fathers and mothers, whether you have children who are prodigals or children who are incredibly appreciative of your love of them, or children somewhere in the middle, your children are not your savior. The love you are longing for from your earthly father is satisfied in the love of God the Father. All those who trust in Jesus as Savior have the same relationship of love with God the Father as God the Son has with him. God says over you the same thing he says over Jesus. You are the one in whom my soul delights. You are my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. And and so whether it's with our earthly fathers or our earthly children, whether it's with our friends or spouses or bosses or whoever else we seek approval and love from, we can stop wasting our days throwing ourselves at other people for the ultimate love and acceptance that we already have and behold in the Son of God. And the great part about that title is that it says to you, when you trust in Christ, your love and approval from the Father is as secure as Jesus the Son of God is, meaning it is as secure as God himself. In Jesus, you have the unchangeable smile of God on your life. And so quite simply this morning, What John is calling us to do is to behold Jesus. Look to Jesus. And let me just say this. This is not something that's just for you at the beginning of your Christian life, if you're a new Christian, to look to Jesus for these things. And we know that because even John the Baptist himself, with his settled testimony here in John 1, later in the Gospels, doubts Jesus' identity as the Savior. If you go to Matthew chapter 11 or Luke chapter 7, we, we read that John sent messengers to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, if you're really this Messiah guy, could you let me know or should we be looking for someone else? Each day, amidst our doubts and our sin and our hurt, we turn to Jesus and recognize our need for him as Savior, day after day. This beloved quote from Pastor Robert Murray McShane sums it up best for us. The the first line of the the quote might be familiar to you, but listen to read on. The rest of the quote was new for me as I studied this week, and it just beautifully encapsulates everything about Jesus that John wants us to behold here. He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Now listen to this. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness 
and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. In other words, behold the Lamb. Well, as a conclusion and kind of as a way to tee up Tony's sermon next week, what happens in our life when we listen to John's testimony, when we recognize our need for a Savior and see that met in Jesus? What happens? We become witnesses like John the witness. When the pieces lock in place, when you see Jesus as the Savior that your heart desperately longs for, you can't help but turn to your side to other people and look on at him and say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that took away my sin, and that can take away yours too. Come back next week and hear Tony talk more about that. Let's pray together. Thank you for all that you are. We acknowledge this morning that we have not even plunged the depths, but even as we waited in the shallows of who you are, Lord, we, we have nothing to do except worship, to turn our hearts to you, and to cry out like John cries out in the book of Revelation with the throng of heaven, worthy is the Lamb. So Jesus, we thank you for being such a good Savior. And I pray that as we lift our eyes from ourselves and look to you, that we would become people who are absolutely obsessed with the only one who is worthy of our obsession and worship, Jesus, our Savior. We love you, and it's in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.